Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, everyone. If you like this podcast, go behind the paywall to get privileged access to the smartest minds in finance. Join the Real Vision community and learn how to become a better investor. Visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code podcast10 to get 10% off our essential membership for the first year. And now to today's episode. Look, I'm really excited about speaking to Brett and Greg because these guys speak my language, but they're in crypto. These guys are building the future of institutional adoption for the crypto industry at Coinbase, the only public company in this space. And they also speak my language because Brett is ex-JP Morgan and Barclays and, um, and Greg is ex-Goldman. And we've come and grown up around the same industry together and we kind of understand a lot of the nuances. So I really want to dig in with them what they're doing because I think it's going to help people really understand what is being built in the space and why the meme, the institutions are coming is not a meme at all. It's a reality. And what the infrastructure they need is really intense. But once it's there, they can come. The world of crypto is an incredibly exciting journey that we're all going on together. We don't know where it's leading to, but we know it's going to be absolutely massive. Join me, Raoul Pal, as I guide you on our adventure to discover just what this new world will look like. Brett, Greg, fantastic to see you both on Real Vision. Great to be here. Thank you. Thanks for having us. So um, if you can both introduce yourself, um, Brett, do you want to go first and introduce yourself? And then afterwards, Greg, you, and then we'll go a little through your journey, how the hell you got here, because it's always fascinating to people. So Brett, just introduce yourself, what you're doing, and and then we'll, we'll dig in a bit from there. So my name is Brett Tejpah. I look after the institutional business with my partner, Greg Tussar. I'm Greg Tussar. Uh, together with Brett, I look after the institutional product area and uh, you know the institutional business, including Coinbase Prime and our exchanges. Fantastic. So, Greg, how the hell did you get here? <laughs> you know, what's your story? Yeah, I'll 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 uh, I'll give you the shorter version of my story uh, and not take you all the way back to the buttonwood tree. But I I began my journey in finance actually in 1992 on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange and. Uh, Standing at the point of sale with the specialist, and you know, watching how everything worked, um, and my journey was one of electronic trading. It what turned out mainly by sheer luck to be the beginning of electronic trading and equities. And um, we had a small startup company. There were four of us at the time, and we made a system where you could make a portfolio of stocks and send it into the exchange really fast. And that was state of the art at the time. Who knew? Um, and we were acquired in 1999, and that company was acquired by Goldman Sachs. So I snuck into Goldman Sachs. So who were you? Were, hold on, we we overlapped. So firstly, you were doing portfolio, um, obviously, um, program trading. Program trading. That's right. 
Yeah. What was the business? And was it John Ashdown who acquired you? Yeah, uh, it was. It was not John Ashdown himself, although we worked closely together. Um, uh, so I, it was a company called TLW Securities, and all of our customers were were um, market makers and derivatives, and so they would trade S and P futures, OEX options, and we would doing the cash baskets, the cash baskets up um, on the other side of that, and that was great until Indexarb kind of went away in the mid '90s, and then it turns out the banks also needed a program trading system, and so we required. Um, Ultimately, by Spearleads and Kellogg, uh, which was acquired by Goldman Sachs in 2000. So we worked closely with John and the and the um, program trading desk. And I spent I spent my career at Goldman up until 2013 because I was there running equity derivative sales um, to hedge funds with Daffy, and that back in 97, 98, 99, 2000. Wow! And I was there for the Spearleads takeover. Gotcha. Yeah, which and the whole trading as well, that one as well. Yes, and I, you know, we we could debate um, a lot about the Spearleads transaction, uh, whether it was good or bad at the time. You'll remember it was mainly about acquiring the Nasdaq market maker, uh, you know, room full of four hundred folks making markets in Nasdaq stocks. And when I left, there were like two, and I I think you really only needed one, but they needed somebody else in case you needed to go to the bathroom, kind of thing. Um, but I. I'd argue that the gem in that was the electronic trading business and the clearing business that came out of that. So that's that's where I stayed uh, until 2013. I left um, to help merge Knight Capital Group and Getco together into KCG after Knight Capital had its issue in 2012 uh, and spent time in the world of high-frequency trading and market making and retail order flow and those things. Was Remco Lentiman around still then as well? He he uh, he was not. Uh, although Remco was at Goldman, uh, and then he did. He went on to one of was it Virtue or something like that. Anyway, just as, an adjunct. Yeah, he was at Citadel for a little while, and uh, I think is at Two Sigma now. Um, and so has been in the world of HFT and market making as well. And then I left for crypto in 2017. I got interested in something about this all seemed inevitable. Um, and I met a few co-founders, and we started a company to bring algo trading and smart routing into the world of crypto. And that company was called Tagomi. Uh, we were backed by Founders Fund in 2018, and we were acquired by Coinbase three years ago. So Brett and I have been looking after the institutional business, with you know my focus really being the building of the product and engineering and technology and so forth um, over that period of time. And so the idea was, can we help institutions activate in crypto and bring you know, scale, trading, and custody, and those kinds of things into the space. So, brilliant, Brett. Your turn. Um, I'll give you the shorter version. Um, my, my, but I'll, I'll share a fun fact, which is um, my very first introduction to finance was when I was still a teenager, and I was a, a runner on the coffee, sugar, cocoa exchange, handing uh, people traders uh, paper tickets and confirming different things in the market with uh, hand signals. Yeah. Uh, so started my career at J.P. Morgan, did 10 years there during a, a phenomenal growth period of banking, which was awesome. Uh, lived and worked in London for 12 years, uh, went, moved over there with J.P. And then while in London, uh, transferred into Barclays, uh, where I worked for the next 17 years. And so um, eventually I became global head of sales. You're quite loyal for an investment banker. It's quite strange. I know. <laughs> places in 27 years. I mean, uh, serial monogamous, when, you know, the same will be true for 
what I've got going at Coinbase. And so um, the, the interesting thing about that long career in banking was, well, it went through a, diff- a few cycles for sure of boom and bust. And I had the pleasure um, of being able to, or the honor of, of, of running each and every one of Barclays different markets businesses over those many, many years. And so through periods of bear markets and financial crisis and boom. And so taking new asset classes to institutional investors is a theme that ties everything together, including my, my time here at Coinbase. And I had looked at, when I was running commodities uh, for Barclays, I had looked at uh, doing something in crypto then at the time and concluded that uh, accident-prone Barclays plus crypto was probably not the best combination at the time. Uh, <laughs> and then looking, you know, looking for and having um, a passion for disruption and using technology to, I was, I was trying to figure out what the future would hold. And I was highly convicted that technology would play a role in disrupting financial services. And it took me a little bit of time to figure out that actually crypto was what I was looking for. So uh, super fortunate to have met Brian and Emily uh, during that journey and been uh, invited to join Coinbase. And so the rest is sort of history. It's a difficult task you guys face because you're early. And I know that's an overused term, but we know the institutional space, we've all been around it for a long time, and they take time to adopt the technology, um, and they take time to get the approvals internally and all of that stuff. So how difficult is it to build ahead of something as opposed to something that's that's happening? I mean, obviously, you guys are very big in the institutional space. Um but you kind of have to build a business. What, what I'm trying to get to is this cyclicality you talked about. It's really hard building businesses for the future in a volatile asset class. How do you guys think about that? You know, it's an interesting product challenge when you think about um, our product roadmap and making sure, you know, the, the lesson from startup life is have a plan for the world you see, not the world you want. And it's easy to have a plan for the world you want. Um, the world we see is one where there are lots of institutions that are activating um, already um, and building for them and their use case in the here and now while making sure we're generalizing so that, um, you know, we, we announced uh, last year a partnership with Aladdin and BlackRock and, and the needs of that echelon of client are a little bit different and we need to be building for that, but we can't be so far ahead of the world we see uh, that we're not building a, a, a viable and sustainable and, and financially sound business also. So that's a tricky balance to strike. But I think, I think what's important, um, and I think the benefit that we have as a company, and one of our superpowers actually, is we have a lot of people who have a good first principles understanding of what those customers want, but also deep crypto knowledge to understand what's happening in the here and now. And I think the combination of those, um, the combination of those cultures and those skills and so forth, is a really unique blend for Coinbase and something that I think sets us apart from a lot of people in crypto who have one or the other, but not both. Um, and I think that's that's part of how we achieve that balance is making sure that we're really paying attention to what's happening in crypto, but also thinking about the needs of the institution that needs controls and and all of those things to really activate. Is that fair, would you say? Totally. I, I think the, the most important thing that happened that helps us answer this question is actually um, a little bit of luck in terms of when we really went after building the institutional business. And we were able to piece together uh, 
custody, prime, smart order routing, financing, uh, the beginning of derivatives, futures, all those things happened at a time where we were able to achieve actually quite large scale early on with institutional clients. And so um, it's very fortunate to have had long-term commitments from institutions, even through of course, the last year, which was headline after headline of unwanted headlines, right? Yeah. And so the fact that we achieve that much scale in our business and then hit a soft patch in terms of momentum um, is really validating because during that extended period, we had clients come on, they bought a bit of Bitcoin, then a bit of ETH. Now they want structured products, they want derivatives, they want uh, actually managed you know, fiduciary products. They, they, they're the there's a big uh, demand coming a pull from clients to actually continue for us, you know, investing and delivering product. And so thank goodness we didn't have some of those crypto headlines a, a year prior. Yeah. Um, and again, I think the significance of announcing the BlackRock partnership, even during the tumultuous period uh, of last year was really important and it helped set the tone for the future. In, in a lot of ways, Throughout the last, since we started in 2017, 2018, you could look at institutions as having sped up or slowed down at different times, but never stopped. And I think what's really important, and I think Brett and I are quite fortunate in having the support of leadership and Brian, who's um, in investing throughout each of those cycles and being sort of steadfast about wanting to build an institutional business. So this transaction with uh, One River Digital Asset Management, or now Coinbase Asset Management, um, is a good example of sort of investing through cycles and and uh, making sure that, uh, you know, that we're, we're continually building towards the future rather than speeding up and slowing down with the cycle itself. One of the things that I don't think many people appreciate, and I've learned to appreciate over time, is what Coinbase is building. You know, a lot of people are building an exchange or some brokerage exchange platform, right? You guys aren't doing that. Well, of course you do that, but that's what most people think. Coinbase, it's a retail product. It's none of those things. What you are, I mean, just the quality of, without flattering you guys, um, but the quality of the people around like you guys is very different than most places. And what you're building and how thoughtful you're building for institutional, you're building something that is really meaningful. And people, I don't think, really understand what it is that Coinbase does yet, because they all put crypto in, well, we just do our trades there. It's not at all. So, you know, I think one of the things to talk about, I think, is prime broking, because this is a core function of investment banking. And it's not you know, yes, you get some sort of elements on that and interactive brokers or whatever it is in the traditional world, but it's a very different thing. And it's that kind of service that differentiate what you're doing to literally anybody else. You know, people like Binance and all of these others, they're not in the same space as you. And I think people don't really understand. So do you want to talk a bit about those institutional services and what they are and why they matter? Because some people watching this will completely get it because they're involved in that world and others they're like i didn't know any of this well why don't you give it a crack in the box sure yeah i um i think that's right i think that we you know we um zooming all the way out just because i i do think to your point that um coinbase is often called a a crypto exchange and i do think that sort of uh doesn't really 
describe what we do. So we have a, obviously a very large retail business, an institutional business, and uh, what we call our developer business, which is where we take a lot of these things, make wallets and so forth available to other third parties. Think of like the A to B West strategy of, 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 of Amazon, for example. Within the, within the institutional business, I think of our business in, from a product portfolio perspective in two parts. There's a prime business, which is where we take multi-venue trading, like back to what we described at the very beginning, how we execute crypto orders in the same way you would execute a stock order across different exchanges and so on and so forth. Custody um, and financing in a proper sort of prime brokerage offering uh, with the ability to do spot margin and and um in shorting and those kinds of things all wrapped together in an integrated product um and then together with staking and governance and sort of native on-chain activities um but importantly for the institutions in a integrated way and as a platform and that's one you know one pillar of it and then the other pillar are the exchanges themselves so the the spot market, the derivatives market. So we we launched two futures contracts and a CFTC regulated exchange. Um, and I think of those, we've organized ourselves that way because on the one side, the brokerage part of this wants as much liquidity as it can, um, a, a straight through financing experience similar to what you get at an investment bank when you're doing prime brokerage and really deep sort of custody expertise. And then the other side on the exchanges wants to service that in our retail business, but also to go out in the wide world and build as big a liquidity pool as possible with as many, as much other retail order flow and other prime brokers and so on and so forth. So we we set ourselves up that way to, you know, on purpose. How do you, just a question about prime broking, because it's a financing business per se. And so it's a capital efficient financing business for for institutions and particularly funds. You must have found that periods of time, <clears throat> because you're a US regulated entity, you're more conservative by nature in how you think about things, because you come from this world, and this is a very volatile asset. So the kind of leverage you offer is going to be very different to, let's say, what FTX or somebody else was doing. So you probably find, my guess is all the business comes to you now, but at different points, and we've seen this in investment banking, Deutsche Bank comes into the market, underprices everybody. <clears throat> For five years, we deal with that. And then somebody blows up a book and it all comes back again because, you know, there's a correct price. How, how do you deal with with the conservative and you have to have to price to have a good quality long-term model versus the market that tries to attract capital very quickly? I think trying to answer that through a client lens is a, is a good way to do it because um, in, in the rush of, you know, crypto prices going up and financing businesses seemingly scaling and a lot of short-term revenue being booked, we were very cautious and selective in terms of who it is that we gave financing to. And we wanted to make sure that we had a balanced equation on the, the, on the supply and the demand side. And so um, we, we never intended to uh, be able to uh, always be the, the, the place that would always lend through periods of volatility. So selective on credit counterparty risk and making sure that, you know, maybe venture funds, for example, are long-term holders of illiquid assets. And on the other side, we may, you know, lend lend those um, lend those tokens, those illiquid tokens for short-term trading use cases, but very selectively. Uh, again, con controlling counterparty risk. And so, um, building the prime model cautiously over time was the right thing. There were a lot of what looked like um, great PL opportunities to do some sort of secured lending or unsecured lending, and we've seen 
how the market unraveled when people really underpriced uh, volatility of the assets themselves and counterparty credit risk. Um, I just want to come back to the point, though, around um, um, answering that, that product question on Prime through a client lens. And, and so one of the things that, to your point about we're building something different, that's really true. And, and you can see that it's different in, in terms of the clients that we attract. Right? And then it's so the, our institutional clients are different than those that exist on, I'd arguably say, almost anywhere else. And so the institutional clients, Rob, that you would have dealt with at Goldman and we both dealt with in our former lives include the likes of BlackRock and others. And so when they, they have a familiarity in a way in which they can book a stock, a bond, a derivative, it's a risk asset that needs financing. It needs, to, it needs to be held safely. It needs to have a fund admin. It needs to have um, good collateral management, capital efficiency, all those things. And so taking that knowledge and then putting it on top of the uniqueness of the crypto asset class, I think is that's our superpower. And, and, that, and that's why we have this deep and long list of clients that want to actually engage in crypto. Now, all of them want to come in for short-term investment gains. Many of them now... Um, are talking about stablecoin use cases and payments use cases. And so one other thing that I wanted to um, emphasize, Greg talked about you know, the markets business and the prime brokerage, but what may not be visible to the whole market is that we're also an infrastructure provider to third parties, right? And so using a, 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 a term from sort of banking, introducing brokers. So that's where you use Coinbase wallet and you know everything is a service, custody is a service, trade execution as a service, and we enable everyone to actually offer crypto products to their end clients. And that's the way the crypto economy is going to grow. And so there's a direct path, the one that Greg described, direct to exchange, direct to on-base Coinbase Prime. But there's also like the indirect path, which where you enable, you know, a, a payments use case on PayPal or, or, you know, a challenger bank or a crypto bank or, you know, any, any number of an eclectic list of, of uh, types of institutions ranging from the crypto native all the way through to uh, the TradFi world. And that's the thing that gives us a lot of confidence that these, these, these long-dated um, investments um, are continuing to form, even post-FTX. We've had sort of a spike to onboarding, but, we, but the, the paths of, of companies that aren't, invested in, aren't in, interested necessarily in owning Bitcoin tomorrow at 22 grand or whatever it is to... Um, but they're interested in actually enabling uh, commerce use cases and stablecoin use cases and tokenization of different assets. And you can't really get all those things, all those building blocks from others. And so I think that's the thing we can facilitate all of those use cases through the platform that Greg's building. So it comes like almost, a, you know, it's the wrong example, but Stripe, which can be integrated anywhere, allow... <clears throat> the processing tools, the pipes. So you allow anybody else to build. And obviously that creates network effects because everyone's building their own on top of what you've built, which is a very interesting, I think a very interesting way of doing it. On the um, institutional side, again, before we go on to how clients are thinking about stuff, I want to talk a bit some more about products because there's some areas that are really interesting to me. Um, I look at ETH staking. I think it's a... I, you guys will get this. I don't think most people get it. And I keep talking about it, how important this is. Because now we have a benchmark yield or risk-free rate for Web3. 
And that allows for things like guaranteed products. It allows for all sorts of different things for different parts of the funding structure and what people can do with it. But the first obvious one, because, you know, I was in the, an equity derivative guy in the 90s, and that whole game was guaranteed funds, right? And it has been in Asia as well for a very long time. And it just feels like, well, if you're going to get a 5% yield and if vols come down enough, you can create nice structures. Are you starting to see the rise of that? Because I think that's a huge onboarding for retail and for institutions because it just lowers the, you know, the European institutions did this massively over the 90s because it just lowered the risk for them, but gave them the upside. How are you guys thinking about guaranteed structures or structured products overall? Yeah, so we, we actually um, are in the midst of, um, we, we have a lot of client demand for structured products. Uh, how, how they come, I won't bore you with the details, whether it's a loan or a swap or a note or you know, any, a myriad of different delivery mechanisms. But we had a, a lot of, a ton of incoming inquiry. And one of the things that was- And is that out of US or Europe? Because European or Asia? It, it's actually mostly Europe and Asia. Yeah, it always is. Yeah. The US never did structured products much. Not really, but like, um, so, so for example, everyone in Asia wants a reverse convertible. Right. Um, always, 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 always. Right. And so, so there's two ways to, to reverse convertibles are selling vol. Asians sell vol, Europeans buy vol. That's... You got it. <laughs> Said from I know this business inside out. <laughs> from the equity derivative trader himself. And by the way, that, that dynamic is still there today. Right. And so a lot of my risk opening increases are all from Asia precisely on that product. And so there's two ways for us to fulfill it. Big picture. One of them is, is for us to help facilitate the issuance of a note. So that's, that, that's one option. Uh, but an, another way to do it is actually through a fiduciary product, so which is where I think CBAM is going to come into play. So and then and there, if someone is going to uh, find the 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 you know access to the marketplace, it needs to go through a third party, uh, a, a fiduciary, and so that has access to the whole the whole marketplace, the best pricing, the best options pricing, the best you know uh, uh, of everything. So we definitely have a long list of inquiry. And we're being selective in terms of saying which ones we think we can provide directly versus the ones that we think we can invite Coinbase Asset Management actually to provide. And then because some of these, as you know, some of them get listed in Switzerland, Germany, others go on like the Deutsche Bank platform or whoever's got the, the, the JP Morgan Wealth Management platform. It's the whole that whole game is there and different people want different things, whether it's a note or a swap or whatever. Absolutely. And so what, honestly, with, with prices where they are now, selling downside puts and taking some income and then getting sort of, you know, if the market does trade down, then get, get, getting, you know, sort of buying the market uh, and buying Bitcoin at 15%, 20% below where it is today is an attractive option for someone who's sitting on the, on the sidelines right now, but wants to, you know, get invested in the space. But I also think the reverse is interesting as well, without going too much into the weeds. I just think if you've just got 20% downside guarantee, and you can figure out participation by selling calls or not selling calls against it. Um, yeah, it depends where the, the skew is and the term structure and stuff evolves. But it's pretty interesting if you say to a client, listen, I know you're scared of this thing, but we'll cap it down 20% downside and you get 80% of the upside or whatever it is. Yeah, I mean, today we've only had, when when we first got to Coinbase, either it was risk on or risk off. It was buy Bitcoin or sell Bitcoin, right? Yeah. It's not terribly exciting and it doesn't really give people the options. And so now at least they can buy or sell, they can manage, you know, uh, they can trim their portfolio using futures. 
you know, hopefully one day all, all in one place. And then, of course, you can start to do more of these structured products. So I think it's just another avenue of getting institutional capital to come in. And also, you know, if I think about the staking yield and its relative stability, what else can you do with that yield? You know, you can create diversified baskets that have options in other areas of the market, outperformance stuff. There's there's so much that people don't realize. And I keep saying this is really important because we've basically now, as soon as the Shanghai fork goes live, we will have basically a money market curve out to a year. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's pretty useful for most stuff. Gets a bit flaky once we go past a year, but but there's a lot that can be done. Are, are, and are you seeing institutions saying, okay, ETH is interesting to me because I can get a yield? Yeah, I, I mean, th- there's... There's a regulatory sort of debate that's going in and around, you know, staking, which I don't necessarily want to go into, but I think that's that's a little bit of keeping the cautious uh, on the sidelines. But yes, having uh, a yield and an identifiable curve again, it all maps to it all maps to the analysis that you would make for any asset if you're thinking about dedicating capital to it. So all these things are, are really important sort of milestones uh, on the on the establishment of crypto as an asset class for sure. It's really interesting to me. The other thing, let's talk a bit about how clients are thinking. So, you know, I've got also an asset management business, but it's a fund of hedge funds, invest just in digital asset hedge funds. Um, People have done the work. They're kind of ready from what my perspective is. Family offices are in the space. My guess is, as usual, institutions are kind of short the call option on the upside, so they panic in when the price goes up because they've actually all done the work. Most of them have got the approval. Yeah, it's a bit noisy right now because of regulatory stuff, whatever. But generally speaking, they're there. How are you when you speak to clients and the institutions around the world? What are you hearing? Well, again, going back to that observation that we had a long enough sustained bull market to allow people to do the right diligence. So, a lot of these cases, the we have this stat that I like to um, cite, but no one seems to think it's as relevant as I do, which is which is 25% or 25% of the world's largest hedge funds are onboarded and active at Coinbase. That's a big deal. You know, it took most of them a year to 18 months to do the operational due diligence to satisfy themselves, and now they're actively trading. And so if I look at, I can almost put them on a spectrum of, by type of client. Um, Hedge funds are early and active, and you're right. Some of them are very opportunistic, so they come and go uh, with risk on and, and risk off sentiment. But what's interesting is, as we were getting, uh, we're still progressing through this. But the world's largest asset manager, BlackRock, made a giant investment. Every everyone took note of that. Everybody, people that had looked at crypto and dismissed it, and everyone that you know had had made the brave step to go in, which was a validation. And Apollo is in the space as well, as we know. I mean, that's another validation. And also the space and, you know, many others. And so the asset management community, generally speaking, is sort of progressively moving towards onboarding. Um, they don't seem to be quite in the same rush as 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 as, as they were in sort of the, the massive bull market. But you're going to hear a whole bunch of new product launches coming up from, from clients next quarter. So we had a bunch of things that were meant to have been launched at, in the fourth quarter of last year. There's now been, you know, FTX was a, um, a catastrophic for sentiment, but it made everyone double down on ODD, operational due diligence. And now a whole bunch of fund launches will come back to the market, I think, in, in, in the next quarter. And so that's important. But here's the thing. The pension funds have been interested, and they have really long time horizons, right? But they're, I, I think, speaking for them a little bit, 
there's just not that many investable asset management platforms because they haven't been given the thumbs up by the Allborns and the Cambridges and of the track record, all the rest of it. So there's just like gaping hole between a lot of pension money that wants to get into this space. And, and we don't have as big a bench as we should as an industry of having different options of credible asset managers that, that meet that hurdle. And that's where that, that that's where this, the asset management strategy for us comes into play in, in, in order to get that next wave of institutional capital into this space. Yeah, I mean, I spoke last year at the Jake Morgan Summit, you know, that super elite thing. And I was speaking to Mary Erdos and others, and they were very, in, they're obviously very interested. I was speaking Web3, myself, Novo, Ian Rogers from Ledger. I was kind of running the whole Web3 program. And the clients would come to me and say, can't get any products. Because JP Morgan, just not in position to do it yet, nor a Goldman, nor is anybody else. So it's it's just fascinating because there's demand and no product. And so it just, you know, it just smacks of opportunity to me all over this space. I've seen this before in my career, and it's it's everywhere. All you just need is price. Yeah, you know, the the, the banks and the and the wealth platforms, you know, it, it feels like there's a a pendulum that swings a little bit there where there's like a lot of momentum and they're leading forward and here we go. And then we have bank capital and a regulatory cycle and sort of the pendulum swings the other way. But the, the I, I would I would love more entrance in the asset class, more competition, more investable options than less. But while we're in this period where uh, not everyone's trying to run through the front door right now, we're building. Yeah. And so we're building the tools and the platforms to, to invite them in. And I think the thing that, um, you know, you could sort of plot out, you know, thinking back to 20, I think it was 2020, end of 2020, first corporate clients, macro funds, then it sort of the go anywhere long short. Um, and that begat a year and a half of deep operational due diligence and, you know, huge numbers of questionnaires and so forth, which was really what carried us through 21 and 22. And what I think you see now is the largest of the large um, systematic, quant, et cetera, interested in the space as a new investable asset class. That's interesting because at the very beginning, the meme was, this isn't big enough. I can't put enough money to work. But I think now with the right infrastructure, the right tools, a proper prime brokerage offering, um, I think the, you know, the time is really right. And I think that, that will do, um, I think great things for the asset class overall. We saw those same guys do the same in markets like India, emerging markets. For a long time, they said it's not big enough. You know, we need these big liquid markets. But, you know, what lies in illiquidity is alpha. And those guys are very good at capturing alpha. And actually, it's a val this comment I'm about to say is a validation of the product that Greg's building and the fact that it works. But we had this quant fund actually in, in this town. Uh, we're in Stanford today. And... Um, the founder of this company is this memorable moment and said, Brett, listen, can you do this? Yes, no. Can you do that? Yes, no. He said, listen, I know, I know you're a mission-driven company. I know you've all these lofty ambitions. I really don't care. <laughs> I, I, I've trained my models. I know I can trade this thing and make money from it. I just need to know if the product works. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, the fact that we're attracting that type of um, uh, investor is a validation, I think, that the product does scale there is sufficient liquidity. And, you know, people don't realize, again, there's a second order from you building this product 
those customers coming to you is we're going to end up with more market depth and liquidity, yep. which is sorely missing. You know, yep. it's, a, it's a problem. It's a very gappy market. And that's okay. And these guys will bring the, reduce the gaps and reduce the vol somewhat, which makes it more tradable for others. Yeah, I think one thing underlying this this conversation to me is it's a funny thing in crypto when you say we're building an institutional business. You could ask you know ten different people that question and get ten different answers. I think for us, um, it really is a very fulsome from you know prop and high frequency trading, which is where the first to come in that we're important to building exchange liquidity and connecting global markets. The same thing they did in every other liquid sort of asset class, but but bringing real, you know, capital I institutions is the word we like to use into the space, which is the next wave of this, which I think is the next sort of foundation for crypto overall. Um, I think that we're focused on that in a way that maybe others aren't or able to enable just because of who we are and as a public company and transparent and all of those things that um, we're uniquely able to bring some of that capital into the space. And so I think that when we say institution, we really mean everything from HFT to corporate pension endowment, investment manager, you know, large hedge funds. And that's a different demographic. Yeah. And I've looked at this and try to solve some of the same things in a, a less complex way than you have. Much, You know, I, I just thought, well, I know how this business works. Everyone starts with the VC. Some people by the underlying, but generally people are lazy, so they go to the hedge funds. Hedge funds are complicated, so just do a fund of funds. It'll work in this space because there's enough performance and it doesn't work in equity long short anymore. So, okay, so that happens. And I look at the hedge fund space and the real opportunity to me is like, well, the hedge fund space globally is $3 trillion. The hedge fund space in in crypto right now is maybe four billion, five billion. Now Alan's l- launched, you know, Brevenhound Digital. And Alan's the first institutional product that's been built properly as a hedge fund. You know, others have come from the weeds up, but he's built, you know, the whole thing using his platform. I just think that's super interesting. The hedge fund space, as we all know from the from the days of old in in our previous lives, is actually the glue that drives all of this and builds the liquidity and then everything gets built on top. And that's not to say it's built on top of leverage. Half of these guys are not using leverage, but yep. they're, 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 they're creating liquidity in ways that buy and hold institutions don't. Yeah, and then just layer on top of that, Raul, the, the Aladdin product, right? So, so that gives $30 trillion of capital the access to allocate to crypto, right, through Aladdin. So BlackRock by themselves are circa 10, I think a, it, somewhere 20-ish trillion so you're talking about 30, you know, sorry, 300-ish clients of Aladdin that could, at the press of a button now, be able to actually engage in a familiar and known way on a trusted, on a trusted pipe, the ability to allocate and like trade a, a BT, BTC USD in the same way they would trade GBP USD, right? Yeah. How cool is that? And so I think that is going to wind up being transformational for the industry. And connected to that platform, just talking about like, types of capital, you have sovereign wealth funds. Yeah, I was about to mention, they're coming. And the Middle East is all over this right now. You can tell because everybody's on a plane there. Every tweet you see is somebody in, in Dubai or Saudi or Abu Dhabi. Uh, we were there. Yeah. <laughs> I rest my case. <laughs> yeah. 
you know, they've really embraced it, I think. And I think we'll see a lot of, I know it's been a meme, the Saudis are coming, but, you know, we see it everywhere there. Um, and, you know, Singapore as well, others. So it's really encouraging. The sovereign wealth funds, I think, are going to be first movers in all of this versus the pension funds. Oh, oh, they're getting involved. I mean, a memorable moment for me was Abu Dhabi Finance Week, where at the opening light show, they had a drone show in the air. They had this unbelievable panorama of panels. And all you saw was like Bitcoin and ETH and crypto. And I mean, it was unbelievably uh, unbelievable. So yeah, they're really excited about, uh, I think, the future of crypto. They're putting up the flag of, yeah. as best they can to become the crypto hub. What's really interesting to me is how the world works is everything blows up last year. I mean, nothing can go right. And for you guys, it's probably going to end up being the single biggest thing, positive catalyst that you've ever faced. Because basically it's nuked anybody else. The world is bifurcating without getting involved in stuff we won't want to talk about. You know, but Coinbase is more the chosen one than other options out there which may have larger shares of market. I mean, it's, an, it's a phenomenal opportunity to capture now. I mean, it doesn't happen often in your career where everybody else is out of the business and you've built the best quality business and eventually people come to you. So the, the flight to quality definitely started around the implosion of, of FTX and we, we've seen that you know, continue. Uh, I hope it translates into you know, more capital being actively allocated. Right now, there's more entrants coming on, but they're not actively deploying, you know, sizable amounts. And so I think we're hopefully, we'll be in a period of relative stability. I don't know what that means. <laughs> Just uh, not not having another year of, of unwanted crazy headlines. So my hope and expectation is that this last wave kind of carried out all the bad actors. And so what's left are good actors with good intentions, with good business models, and therefore, you know, hopefully we get some helpful regulation as well. And then we can sort of get into the next phase of, of, of the establishment of crypto. So, yeah, I mean, we're, 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 we're seeing it. And I think we'll, we'll see more people um, entering the space sometime soon. I mean, the, the, it's a function of price. You know, yeah. look, institutions are sheep and they will follow each other when the price goes up. I mean, it just is what it is because... Everyone gets a little bit braver the higher the prices. I think the challenge, though, is that some of these things that we're building or that you know some of the platform hedge funds and others are building take time. And you have to be willing to invest through a cycle in order to spend the year or two or three to build all the infrastructure you need when the time is right. Uh, it's hard to just rush in or out when you're talking about things like custody or uh, it's cru It's crucial to keep building... You know, the meme of bills in a bear market is absolutely crucial because you capture everything if you can do it. Yeah. Prime financing is another good example. These are not small builds of things that, you know, uh, to uh, that, that that take time. And on the customer side of things, finding portfolio managers and, and you know, build, you know, acquiring data, doing the research and doing all those things um, isn't, you know, takes years, months, you know, a long, long time. Uh, and so we're, you know, it's, I, I feel grateful to be at a place that has a long-term outlook um, that looks at things over cycles, decades, et cetera, not, you know, not worried about the next wealth odds necessarily. So talk to me about the move into asset management. 
because I was not surprised, but surprised. And that's that's obviously Alan Howard cashing out as well, because he was an investor in One River, wasn't he? Um, so um, talk to me about that, because that that's fascinating, because this is now moving closer towards a Goldman or JP Morgan model where you have whole different bunch of client services, whether it's asset management or execution or tools and facilitation. Honestly, it was just, just in response to unmet client demand. And so as we go around and talk about the invest, investment thesis for crypto, and we talk to pensions, endowments, corporations, and institutions of all type, we had a, arguably the biggest block of passive capital is, at, in, is sort of stuck in pensions, looking to find a way to a, a, a means where they can uh, deploy capital in the space. And so that's a big bunch of, of, of capital that, that needs to be able to allocate to credible asset managers. And so that's really the, the, the driving sort of thesis behind it. Brian was reflecting um, in a one of our um, town halls recently about the reflection that, you know, so something like 85% of the world's assets are, are, are managed by, you know, fiduciaries. And so there's the, there's all the, capital that can find its way directly to the Coinbase apps and the retail platform. But, you know, 85% of the world's capital is managed by other people, you know, either pensions, sovereigns, endowments, or others. And so that capital needs a, a, a way to find itself, um, find a way to, to invest in the space. And, and so Coinbase Asset Management, hopefully, is going to be one of a, a few credible players in the space alongside others. What um, products do you I know it's all very new, so you're just figuring it all out. What products do you currently offer clients? You know, what kind of investment portfolios? And then where do you think it goes? Uh, a range. I, I will go into them now, but there's, you know, uh, there's, there's there's yield, there's liquid, there's illiquid. You know, it, the shelf is, is, is building, but the idea would be to have a whole range from the most liquid and passive to the most active. And so that's the idea. Um, there'll be... Probably Eric's probably the best person that maybe on a follow-up podcast with you. Yeah, I'd like to get Eric on actually. I'd like to speak to him. Yeah, yeah, I think it'd be awesome. But I think it, you know, back to the, I think, the way you opened it, um, the conversation. If you think about the what we're building and how it's different, you know, we have the prime product, which is um, market access, financing, custody, all on an agency basis. Talking about structure products, a client wants the ability to enter into a structure, uh, a fiduciary, or the markets themselves, and the ability to sort from market makers and other participants just to engage directly in sort of the, you know, the the buying and selling and, and matching engine and all those things. So that's a that's a big surface area, but the idea is to build, you know, the you know the most fulsome institutional business. We need to have all of those things on the shelf because the range of clients we talked about from quant hedge fund to pension endowment to, you know, um, somebody that wants to trade structured products and so forth. Those are, those are all different kinds of institutions and all of them are on our transom. They all need different things. So I think the idea is to have the most, um, you know, the most fulsome institutional business out there, not just, you know, the ability to trade 10 to one perpetual futures or something like that. Um, yeah. Um, and you missed one thing because you used a very clear word, which was agency. Yeah. And we know that there's two sides of the business, which is agency and principle. Yeah. How are you thinking about market making, you know, all of the things that you've also done in the past, um, Greg, you know, yeah. 
that kind of internal capital using to become a liquidity provider. Obviously, I think the days are gone. I don't know what it is in crypto in terms of the ability to run proprietary books, but in terms of liquidity provision, how is that? How are you thinking through that? Yeah, so the the prime um, order routing business today is all agency. So when a client says, I want to buy 100 Bitcoin, we're at any given instant going to synthesize where the best price is across all the different markets that we aggregate. So it's not just our own exchange, it's other exchanges that we've done operational due diligence on and market makers. And in the same way you would TWAP an order uh, to buy you know, 10 million shares of ExxonMobil, you'll TWAP an order to buy you know, 1,000 Bitcoin over the course of the day sort of thing. And a client can run a post-trade analytic that shows, here's all the places I traded, here's what the market was at the time, here's the BWAP, and you know, all the things you would expect if you were doing best execution after the fact. So that's one side of the business. The other side um, that you were talking about before of providing structure and those sorts of things ultimately require firm capital to, to carry out. And so there, in responding to clients' needs, um, we will put you know, firm capital to work. Um, we will um, offer balance sheet when clients are looking to do different things. <laughs> and that's a, those are, that's a different side of the business, separate in the same way that you know, the fiduciary side is separate yet again. And so as you were describing, like this is kind of turning into how a bank is organized. It, it is very much that way. What we don't do is operate a, you know, from my prior life, sort of an HFT style on exchange market making product that's trading on our exchange or this. So I think of principal capital commitment to clients when they're asking us to do things very separate from, you know, a, uh, a, a crop trading uh, market making type strategy, which we do. It's probably worth mentioning, by the way, that uh, Coinbase Asset Management will be run uh, independently. Uh, and so there'll be information barriers and Chinese wall and the usual, all that stuff. The other thing I want to mention, by the way, is that They've, it's, it's still in beta, but they've built something really cool, uh, SMA, so separate managed account, and they built this infrastructure on top of Coinbase. And so the idea here is that everyone who's allocated to crypto, all the competing asset managers, can use this infrastructure to have a multi-manager, multi-custodial product. And at fees that are, because the cost of it is, is low, which has been the thing that's prohibited everyone from running a bunch of small separate accounts. Um, this will be another way of activating and inviting capital in the space. So the RA world, I think, is will have lots of demand for that, and we've we've had uh, well, they've had um, a lot of incoming demand for that product. How are you thinking of tokenizing funds? You know, I've been watching this space. I'm very interested in it. You know, we're doing some stuff at Real Vision where we're, we're getting the community to construct portfolios and. Right now, they can copy each other. So we're kind of creating this hive mind, and it does pretty well in asset allocation. And then they can copycat trade it. But the idea is eventually we can tokenize these things, right? So now you've got an educated audience creating an asset allocation that tends to outperform the market over time. Um, and so then that can be tokenized. We're seeing this with – we've got a trading league going as well for one of our NFT communities. And what we're seeing is what we're, what's in my head is let, let's let people – show things it's all on chain so you can see everybody's performance and everything else that's proven but eventually we'll be able to allocate capital you know we've seen businesses like enzyme and stuff like that creating interesting platforms where we can then allocate capital or find capital allocators we, we don't have to be, you know we're not the capital allocators but we would find people therefore who can invest in these guys and i, I think the tokenization of asset management 
at a broader level than what just some of the funds are looking at. I don't know who's done it so far. I think Apollo, a, f- a few others, KKR have done some stuff. How are you thinking through that? Because I feel like that's not for this way per se, probably, but it's something we have to plan for. So we have this um, long list of everyone that wants to tokenize everything. And we gotta, we have to be selective about which ones we try and run after. I would say on the thematic of tokenization, what's really interesting is that at the one big chunk is all around money market funds. So you've already seen some of the... the, the oh, it's like a stable coin, essentially. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so there's actually a lot of work being done right now with the TradFi players who have like dipped a toe into crypto to try and bring a tokenization use case to life. Uh, I can go more into detail if you want, but one of the triggers for that was what happened with the UK LDI uh, um, with, with the pension. Yeah, explain. Curve um, um, shifted higher. Uh, the pension funds found themselves um, under pressure in terms of the, the collateral management uh, into those swaps and wound up having to liquidate, uh, mass liquidate big uh, positions to, for, for, for collateral. And so you can't transfer uh, a money market. Because be, they were using leverage to buy gilts to meet their their hurdles, right? Essentially. Yeah. And so, you know, when you talk about tokenizations, like what problem are you solving for? Maybe one of the things that the problem that you could be solving for there is actually the transferability of collateral using money market funds. So you wouldn't have to actually liquidate the funds themselves to, to get the cash collateral to then use that cash to to to, to manage your um um, exposure and, and swaps and other, uh, yeah, in, in those arrangements. And so that's pretty interesting. The, the other uh, use case for tokenization is for large asset managers to try and tap into di- distant, different distribution channels on account of having a new mechanism for to find new, let's say, retail or high net worth uh, accounts by, by virtue of hitting a new distribution channel. So on this eclectic list of sort of groupings that we have, we have things like hedge fund GPs. Uh, we've got private equity funds. We've got, you know, people want to tokenize everything. In fact, Larry Fink was on, um, in and around um, the Davos. Uh, he, he did some press and, and, and just talked about the, the application of tokenization technology for safety and soundness of the financial system and, you know, collapsing T plus one settlement to real time. and. Yeah, I mean, all securities, all deriv- derivatives, you know. When I was still at Goldman, we had ISTA stuffed under our desks because there were so many of them. Nobody could, you know, it's a mess, right? We just, and what is an ISTA but an NFT? I mean, it's just blindingly obvious. And it's a much more capital efficient way of doing it and recording it. So when Lehman goes under, you don't spend six years figuring out who owns what in the, in the collateral chain because it's all on chain, on blockchain. Yeah, but this, I, I, as the point to wrap up the tokenization thing, the fact that we're, we, we still have this massive institutional engagement from the world's largest existing custodians, right? Everyone has this thesis on how crypto is going to transform financial services. And so there's just, there's hundreds of people at individual institutions thinking through how to tokenize assets and what, what the, the staying power of crypto will mean for the existing financial services. Uh, marketplace. And so that's the thing that's keeping people really invested. In fact, one of the investment bankers was saying, hey, Brad, you know, we don't we don't use the crypto word anymore. We talk about digital assets only and, and you know, infrastructure uh, and, and things of that nature. But but that's 
it's a good thing, not a bad thing, that now the the, the application of crypto technology is the thing. I, I would say this. And what do you what do you use as terminology? You use when you're speaking to clients, you're using digital assets as your terminology. That's the one I use. I've crossed the void. I'm all crypto. Yeah, same. I, I still, <laughs> you know, I, I'm. Uh, yeah, I say crypto most of the time. You say crypto. I know well. what people are saying when they say digital assets, but I, I respond by saying crypto. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, final question. This has been fascinating to me. Um, final question is, in your mental model, well, firstly, what is the institutional market size versus retail right now? Let's say at Coinbase because it's public. And, and where's your mental model of where it might be in five, seven years' time in terms of percentages? Yeah, I think since we since we make these numbers public, if you were to look at the assets that we have on platform, it's roughly half retail and half institutional. Um, and the half that's institutional sits in our in our Coinbase trust company. The uh, you have a qualified custodian, the um, uh, regulated as a as a trust. Um, where could that go? I think as Brett referenced before, the you know the the access to the to the Aladdin client base, the entrance of the hedge funds that we're talking about and so forth. Um, you know, I uh, I hesitate to put a number. I mean, where is it at somebody like Goldman? I, I don't know. It's probably 80-20. It's probably 80% institution, 20% retail in the end. It, at Goldman, it's, it's even more stark than that. But, um, yeah, I, 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 I see... Um, incredible growth if we can enable, you know, with a, a platform that looks familiar, um, you know, for people to come across, but I'm, I put a number on it, but I think it's, I think it's pretty, uh, exciting. I, I would say one way to, well, is to say, when you, when you think about the, you know, like in your career, you know, equities as equity derivatives, structured products, markets, commodities, all those things, like what percentage of the overall asset allocation are they? And so even at what I think is a pretty modest um, but still ambitious goal, if we can get sort of 1% to 3% of allocation to, to crypto, it, it'd be, you know, it, it would grow. I think, yeah, I think that's way too small. Just, you know, again, using the example, you know, I've run hedge funds, done all of this stuff, but one of the great examples of this whole thing was the commodity team at Goldman. I don't know if you remember them. And that GSCI didn't exist, right? Nobody mm -hmm. had commodities in their portfolio. And by the time that sales team had kind of gone through the institutional base, commodities were over ten, yeah, were up to ten percent at various points in the cycle. There's no reason why one to three percent is, you know, that's what the argument was was for hedge funds, and hedge funds are a much bigger part alternatives than now. When they first launched as well, been in that whole tailwind. It's like, well, 1% of your portfolio in alternatives, half these bloody endowments now 50% alternatives. <laughs> yeah, that was an interim goal. <laughs> I, I was more 20%, but you know, I'll take your 10%. Yeah. I'm just checking. You, you were far too conservative for me, I think. Yeah. Guys, listen, fantastic conversation. Really interesting. Love what you're doing. I think you're doing exactly what the space needs. I don't think people really understand uh, what it is you're building. And I just thought it was really important to tell this story to people as well. So well done. Thank you. Grateful to be here. Thanks for having us. Really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you, Rob. It's awesome. I really appreciate it.
you know, I was blown away by this conversation to realize I knew that Coinbase were really serious in this space in what they were building for institutions, let alone the other activities for retail and others. But what blew me away is how thoughtful they are and how in-depth their offering is and how they're thinking this through. They're building something truly extraordinary here. And with the whole space blowing up around them, they come out as easily leaders in the space. It's a volatile market out there. It's not the easiest time. But if we can all get through the other side, then we've got something really interesting here. So look, I, I just thought it was fascinating to see behind the curtain what is really happening for the institutions.